I have um, to start with an apology. I am not a legal expert nor a South China Sea expert per se, so uh, you might be wondering by the end of my presentation, what the heck am I doing on this panel? Um, I suppose I'm here because we're in the graveyard slot after all, and you need a little bit of entertainment in between two <laughs> coffee breaks. Um, hopefully I'll live up to that expectation. It is nonetheless a great pleasure to be here and to share the floor with people I have great esteem for and uh, for the opportunity to be here and learn about the recent development of their research. Um, it also um, it gives me a tremendous amount of comfort uh, to know that when Bill Hayton is among the speakers at the South China Sea Conference, not only the intellectual firepower, but more crucially, the visual firepower will be more than anybody needs. And leaving someone like myself in a very comfortable position, that actually I don't really need much visual firepower. So I have only two slides. <laughs> the question I was given to address today um, is one that I've been working for a while, um, and I've come at it from the perspective of a project I've been running in particular this past year. Um, with colleagues at the Naval War College in the United States, uh, focusing first and foremost on the nature of Chinese maritime strategy um, in the East and South China Seas. And I shall focus on providing an answer to this question from that perspective. After all, as we've heard this morning, China is the single fastest growing uh, military, but particularly naval power in the region. So it's about time we talk about the elephant in the room. And I'm particularly grateful, actually, to uh, Rav to, to raise the question, because I would have not put it that way, but I really liked it. So, in a nutshell, when we ask the question, is naval power going to close the South China Sea chapter? I would say the answer is yes. That is a distinct possibility. In fact, I would argue that naval power is at the heart of the current changing shape of the arrangements in the South China Sea. Now, the real issue here it's not whether naval power is going to sort of sort things out or not, but it's how it's going to close this chapter. And for what purpose, especially if you're looking from the perspective of China. First though, let me clarify the terms of the engagement, as any good naval person would do. What do we mean by naval power? I adopt here a broad definition of naval power, one that does not just focus on navies. It probably would be better to say maritime power. I refer to all its state actors, navals and air capabilities that operate at and from the sea, as well as those that can project the power from ashore into the maritime domain. Operationally speaking, the maritime domain is by default tridimensional. Surface, air and subsurface. Thus, land-based air power with projection potential is just as important as warships and submarines. And we need not to forget that. There's way too often the tendency to put a slides with the millions of ships on it and say, like, oh, look at that. It's kind of more complicated than that. Second point, as a preliminary sort of uh, 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 opening salvos, as it were, that I'd like to make is naval power, as a tool of statecraft, works best in deterrence function. A naval war is always an option only when all else has failed, particularly attempts at deterrence. This is an important preliminary consideration because the positive answer that I've, to the question that I've just provided does not imply that I believe that China has a plan to seize control of the South China Sea by means of war. Its current strategy, which I will explore in a moment, seeks to successively establish strategic control of key portions of this maritime basin and to allow Chinese authorities to project hard power 
within the South China Sea confines in a sustained fashion. And here the sustained fashion is a key element. Within the so-called Nine Dashed Line, artificially enhanced military outposts under Chinese control in the Paracel and Spratly Islands are designed to ensure just debt. And they are complemented by a wide and growing array of land-based missile capabilities and naval, both military and paramilitary, assets. The second point I'd like to make, or based on these premises, is that whilst the current strategy is seeking sort of to close the South China Sea chapter in a fashion that would see Beijing emerging as holding the keys to this basin, establishing a position of strength that would enable its authorities to exercise benevolence to other users of the South China Sea. It also comes with a fundamentally irreconcilable contradiction, or tension, if you want. This tension was laid bare by Xi Jinping himself just a couple of months ago in July, while he was reviewing the uh, uh, troops um, in the middle of the uh, landlocked part of China, she pointed out that the Chinese people love peace. We will never seek aggression or expansion, but we have the confidence to defeat all invasions. For no one should expect us to swallow bitter fruits that is harmful to our sovereignty, security or development interests. Notwithstanding the official narrative of state actors standing ready to respond to provocation with a measured but resolute behavior, the announcement that is undertaking across the Chinese military, particularly in terms of capabilities that are relevant in terms of application and deployment in the South China Sea, China's behavior is not symptomatic merely of a country seeking to ensure that its maritime rights and sovereignty are not infringed upon. Indeed, as it was recently calculated, with an average of nine new surface combatants commissioned every year since 2010, there is little doubt that the Chinese Navy is uh, by far the single largest growing naval force on the planet since the Cold War. But in the Chinese maritime landscape, the Chinese Coast Guard and the People's Armed Forces Maritime Militia have undergone significant organizational transformation and capabilities build up. To that, you must also add the rocket force and the missile strategic components. As Beijing's top leadership has put it, China is on a pathway to become a maritime power. And these developments in capabilities would confirm the idea that this, wide, this is a wide-reaching notion, one not merely aiming at protecting the nation's long-lost maritime territories and protecting its cherished floating frontiers. So what is the Chinese current strategy in the South China Sea about? What is the role of naval power in it? In many ways, Chinese strategy in the South China Sea is not coming out of an entirely new playbook. It has the features of a tailored form of coercion below the, threshold, the traditional thresholds of high-end conflict to pursue the country's maritime claims. Indeed, Chinese coercive behavior has more recently prompted scholars and officials to consider it as a manifestation of a new form of competition known as gray zone conflict. The strategy underwriting the uh, grey zone approach, the current sort of scholarly argument goes, would be one aimed at pursuing a change of the status quo of the disputes in the South China Sea whilst avoiding high-end war. 
I personally disagree with the notion that there is a, such a thing as a grey zone strategy. Conceptually, the notion of a grey zone strategy adds little, adds little to the existing literature on maritime coercion. And practically, it creates confusion um, over the understanding of maritime coercion by blurring the distinction between military and constabulary activities. <coughs> Incidentally, the notion of a grey zone strategy is fundamentally tautological because you can only establish ex post, so it's always going to be correct. But I'm happy to articulate this further in the QA in case you want to dig this further. But the distinction between military and constabulary coercion is very important, and this is significant for two reasons. First, understanding the difference between military and constabulary coercion contributes to elucidate the functional correlation between Beijing's strategic objectives and maritime claims. Second, this distinction is significant because it highlights how, at sea, military, constabulary and militia actors can conduct both types of coercive activities. The nature of the coercive action is determined more by the context than by the actors conducting it. The key difference between these two types of activities is that military coercion is designed to achieve strategic objectives that are to increase China's ability to project power for denial, deterrence and control of a particular operational space. Constabulary coercion relates to a more limited legal objective of controlling part of the sea and some of the features in it. Data on Chinese behaviour in the South China Sea would suggest that Chinese maritime claims to control rights and interests are only one component of a broader set of strategic aims to project power, preventing others to do the same what in some circle is known as the A2AD strategy, the anti-access area denial. But again, I don't like that acronym because it entails all sorts of problems. For this reason, I would argue that China is pursuing the development and use of naval power to meet the parameters of what I would call, rather than a grade zone strategy, a hybrid strategy. One that mobilizes military and constabulary and paramilitary means in a coordinated fashion, using political and legal rhetoric to justify them and to prevent or inhibit responses in the pursuit of specific geostrategic objectives. Within this context, in a maritime perspective, the only true novelty in the Chinese strategy pertains to the use of coercion in the conduct of constabulary activities. This is very much of a historical novelty. In the 2000, mid 2000, up until sort of very recently, constabulary operations were about governance, were about we're going to fight together transnational threats, whether it is pirates, bandits, terrorism, proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, you name it. Today, this is something different. And in a way, the emergence of ANCLOS as a main framework uh, internationally from a legal point of view planted the seeds for one such manifestation. Already in 1978, as the ANCLOS uh, process of the Third Conference was unfolding, Barry Buzan noted that the oceans were becoming an important source of dispute and conflict among states. He considered that the current disorder arose from a revolution in the rules and norms by which states regulated their activity on the global commons of the oceans. Thus, in his view, the convention that was going to be developed at the end of this process would not so much resolve some disputes as to contain them. The document that came to the Anglos in his view was not to create order out of chaos, but rather 
to define the terms of disorder. What we see today is an instrumental use of those legal tools to pursue national claims. For a reason of time, I will not provide you a full list of the military coercive activities and how they differ, but I'm happy again to follow this one up in the QEA. I will, however, spend a minute to discuss the most significant example at the heart of my argument of a strategy in which maritime claims are only a part of a broader set of strategic ambitions. In the South China Sea, military coercion has included, continues to include, passive assertion measures such as the development of shore-based infrastructures for military use. These are passive measures in that once they are in place, they perform their function not as part of a specific response or initiative, their existence is an act of coercion <coughs> itself. What I'm talking about here is the island reclamation and upgrading efforts of seven features that China occupies in the Spratly Islands and an equal number of features in the Parcel Islands. In the Spratlys, China has created a staggering 13 square kilometer of land to accommodate port facilities, radar stations, airstrips, reinforced hangars, closing weapon system, point defense systems, you name it. What do you want? A few fighter jets? Absolutely not a problem. These facilities are considered to be operationally, um, uh, operational and capable of supporting both constabulary and, crucially, sustained military operations. In the parasols, three outposts uh, uh, fill the protected deepwater harbor. Five include helicopter pads, and Duncan Island houses a full helicopter base, um, whilst uh, Woody Island uh, masters an airstrip, reinforced hangars, and surface-to-air HQ-9 missile batteries, in addition to a variety of civilian buildings, um, in, including lighthouses and a cinema, 3D. Really cool. But then when you've got sailors in the middle of nowhere, you really need to give them something to do. We know also that in March uh, 2017, a G1 fighter was visible on the island's rhino in confirming of the reports of these assets deployment to the islands. The military potential unfolded from the scale of this installation, coupled with this, um, the steady progression in deploying advanced combat systems, undermines attempts to claim that authorities, uh, the, the claims of the authorities in Beijing that they are not militarizing the South China Sea. The shield scale finds no equal in similar reclamation activities by Taiwan, Vietnam, Malaysia, and the Philippines. And this defines the military scope of this island-building effort. And that's where my two slides come in. To summarize what I've just said, that's what the South China Sea looks today, based on the uh, land installations um, and the military projectability of power that they have. <coughs> Plus, on top of it, you have the growth of relevant missile, air, and naval capabilities, surface and subsurface. The difference between the orange and the yellow is that the yellow bits were the ones that China possessed in 2000. The orange is the addition since then. But that's my favorite, because we should probably talk about something that we can visualize. Now that's uh, Fairy Cross, as you probably all know. Look how beautiful it is. Comparative terms and scale, it's something very different. But my favorite one is this. How many of you have come through Heathrow airports? And how many of you are familiar with T5? Now take T5 and put it at the very bottom of Fury Cross Reef. That's the scale you're looking at. Now, this example allows me to tackle the issue as to why I can see the Chinese strategy as a hybrid. On 17 October 2015, um, General Fan Changlong, the chairman, uh, chairman of the uh, 
the, the, the chairman of the Central Military Committee, gave the keynote address to the Shangchen Forum in Beijing. In describing China's maritime security agenda in the South China Sea, he pointed out that his country supported peaceful ways to resolve disputes, and that the outposts in the South China Sea were projects mainly carried out for civilian purposes. In his words, these projects were to enable us to provide better public services to aid the navigation and production, um, as the completion of the lighthouses on Quarteron and Johnson's uh, South Reef indicated. A few weeks earlier, from the lawn of the White House, President Xi Jinping himself had stressed how the relevant construction activity in the Spratly Islands was not meant to target or impact any country. Chinese authorities had no intention to militarize the outposts. Yet, uh, as he pointed out, the islands in South China Sea since ancient times are Chinese territory, and as such, Beijing has the right to uphold their own territorial sovereignty and lawful legitimate maritime rights and interests. These statements project, were designed to project a different image from the one that I've just described. That was seeking to present China as a state actor with a lawful maritime rights and interests, delivering international public goods, and if anything, a reactive power to someone else's provocations. They deployed a political and legal rhetoric projecting the image of responsible maritime power. A closer look at this rhetoric reveals the Chinese authorities have thus far mobilized it for two tactical aims. First, they have so to downplay the asymmetry of Chinese capabilities, essential to deter other actors and compel and acquiesce them to Chinese position. Second, they have endeavored to present Chinese actions as measured responses to a situation created by others. In this respect, on both occasions, General Fan and President Xi were nonetheless speaking to this broader contest of a Chinese hybrid strategy in the South China Sea. Here I'd like to stress a very important point. The link that connects the strategy in the South China Sea to the role of naval power, both in its constabulary and military functions, um, as it is regarded um, in terms of national security interests in China. During a visit to the Navy headquarters in March, President Xi linked the Navy to the nation's goal of greater rejuvenation. In a vision of Neo-Mahanian flavor, he regarded a stronger modern force with the confidence and capabilities to defeat all invading enemies and safeguard China's national sovereignty, security and development interests more important at this particular point in time than any time before in the country's history. Protecting the national territory, inducing the sea to project power and influence to safeguard wider interests are both equally central to the role of naval power, and securing the former is necessary to pursue the latter. In conclusion, how will naval power close the South China Sea chapter? Well, in China, national authorities regard maritime capabilities as a central tool of statecraft, heralding the country's ascendancy to the world stage. They consider the accession, protection, and ultimately control of maritime rights and interests as key pillars of the process of national rejuvenation and a function of the might needed to ascend. In the South China Sea, maritime claims are function of strategic goals, and as such, constabulary coercion is functionally subordinated to military coercion. Accordingly, Chinese maritime rights, which draw upon different interpretation of multiple legal regimes, would entitle China to access and exploit resources in claimed areas. In turn, the capabilities needed to acquire the control of these contested spaces nurture the quest 
for those required to protect wider interests be, uh, um, outside their confines. In a context where competing claims defund, de demands the Chinese to defend every inch of China's land and every drop of its water, Chinese authorities regard the sea as a place of struggle where maritime claims are prerequisite for and subject to power projection and where might makes rights. The strategy of coercion in the South China Sea is, as I said, a hybrid strategy. It is a hybrid because it seeks to coordinate and synchronize tactical activities and political and legal rhetoric to prevent or limit counter-responses. It is a hybrid strategy because it seeks to deter and compel whilst keeping the escalation ladder under control. It is a hybrid strategy in that the development of capabilities and the use of force are tailored to specific contexts and circumstances, not to an ambition to avoid army clashes. The ultimate goal is to close the South China Sea, cha uh, the South China sea chapter without a fight. But therein lies the most complex challenge. As Chinese naval power grows and its implementation strategy consolidates and widens, the hybrid strategy I mentioned here, its intended recipients may lean towards hedging, if not balancing behaviours, instead of opting for compliance to pressure. Concurrently, options for managing differences may only yield limited results. Crucially, as, the China, as China's long-term ambitions beyond the boundaries of the South China Sea remain still under debate, Chinese naval power may invite in further international opposition from stakeholders like the US, Japan, but even European ones like the UK and France if, and the European Union. Thus, by trying to mobilize naval power to close the South China Sea chapter, Chinese authorities may very well find themselves in opening up a new one that will be both more complicated to resolve and less likely to remain confined to the realm of deterrence. But this is another chapter, one that will require definitely another conference to write about. On this happy note, thank you very much. <laughs>